0: And we are go! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Virginia Company Podcast. I am your host, John Smith, and I'm coming at you with a new Cigar of the Week. And this week's cigar, this week's cigar, as I pull out its wrapper, and you can probably hear it crinkling in front of me, was a Camacho, six-year-aged, original Corojo, five-month barrel finish of bourbon. American Barrel-aged, built, bold, Camacho. Mmm. What a powerful name. Bold. Built. And that's what we're going to be talking about first. The build. or More specifically, the construction of the cigar. This cigar was built satisfactorily overall. I fingered it in my hands. Rolling over it. It wasn't crumbling. I kept it in my humidor for a few months. And while I'd been having trouble with humidity, it seemed that the velvita packs I put in were doing their jobs. And I was proud to have it. This is one of my favorite blends. I've smoked it before. And does it live up to its name? Bold? Can I really taste bourbon? Am I going back to that drink of drinks, which has comforted so many and ruined so many other lives? Well, let me describe it for you. I considered it in my hand before cutting it. It had just a, just a darkest, almost dark chocolate wrapper. A few inches long, good ring gauge, beautiful band. Excellent, or at least so I thought. Firm, no soft spots, but not dry and tasteless as sometimes cigars get when they haven't had enough humidity. Before I cut, I smelled it, and I could smell with it the construction, the flavor of cured tobacco. And it was a comforting thing. I prepared for myself this moment. i had had its brothers before. But something you need to know about the cigar is that even if they come from the same barrel, the same humidor, the same field, no two are exactly alike. They're each unique in their own little ways, their own inconsistencies, their own artistic blends. While they might come from the same place and be designed to be the same thing, they are not. Each cigar is like a journey that one takes, and it's inspiring or horrifying every time one takes it. I cut the cigar with a straight cut so I could maximize pull and draw, which is very important to me. And I lit it, rolling the cigar in my fingers, rotating it to make sure it got an even burn. First, with matches around the edges, so as to get an even drawing so it would not canoe. Now, canoeing is the process by which a cigar burns on only one side, and sometimes it's unavoidable if it's poor construction, or if you've done a poor drop lighting. User error is more often than not the reason for a canoe cigar. So it's very important that I get it correct when I do it. So I can easily enjoy the combination of flavors as they were intended. Though it will take me wherever I want, or wherever it wants, for that matter. I lit it delicately at first, and then to get the center and light the ultimate pyre to the cigar's death in my rebirth as a cigar aficionado, as a taster, as a reviewer, I took my torch and lit the center. This did the trick, encapsulated it off, and I was eager eager to take my first draw my first puff I didn't take a dry draw that was my first mistake when I finally took the first draw of the cigar my smoke billowed up into the night sky I noticed something instantly the flavor that I know and love of a rich earthy darkness followed by a shot of bourbon in the back of your lips And the tip of your nostrils and the tip of your tongue, as it shoots out the end of your nose and out of the orifice of your mouth, was still present, but it had to be worked upon to achieve that. The draw was tight, difficult to unleash, and it maintained this tightness throughout the entirety of the smoke. For me, I like a loose draw. I like a draw that's easy, like sucking through a straw, so I can get the most flavor as I can out of it in the time I have it, usually for 45 minutes to an hour. In this case, this particular one did not live it to up, up to its brothers, who have traditionally, while they've always had a tight draw, were not quite this tight and did not require this much effort from me. Nonetheless, the cigar was enjoyable, well-wrapped, and well worth the price. I took it in my mouth and enjoyed it, and tasted each flavor note. Rich, oily, dark wrapper, followed by a shot of bourbon, as though it had just gone down and the aftertaste was still in your mouth. It was a fine thing. I sat there, thinking moment by moment about the others I'd had. And while it certainly held up its consistency and flavor, it... It was consistently... How do I put this? Consistent in flavor, but consistently tight in the draw. Difficult to taste. But when the smoke finally did arrive, and caressed my tongue... And my nostrils and the retrohale. That richness that I fell in love with was still there. And what a richness it was. What a richness it was. I tell you this. I was impressed, once again, with the general construction besides the draw. Because it burned evenly. With three or four inches of ash... Almost half the cigar. Before it finally puttered off. And it did not comb. It was well built. It was simply too tight for me. I would say overall. I rated it. Well over. An average cigar. My average cigar of course is a 7. This one I would say was an 8 for experience. Part of that might have been. The place in which I was smoking. I rather love my front porch. I enjoyed immensely. Tonight's a dark, rainy, cold, lonely, weary night. A night leading into winter. And nonetheless, the cigar warmed me. It was like going back to an old friend. And while at first it was tight and difficult to ease out the flavors and the exchange, over time it loosened up, or so it felt. And the old flavors that I had originally become so enamored with and enjoyed interacting with were there and all was well. I immensely enjoy this cigar and I would suggest, while it wouldn't be my first pick for a new smoker, if you have a friend who's deeply in love with both cigars and his bourbons and liquors, let's just giving it to him as a gift or perhaps trying it with him and see what he has to say. I confess I'm not an alcohol man, I rarely drink, but I have had bourbon, and I did enjoy the aftertaste, it's definitely present, subtle, more obvious on the retrohale, but present nonetheless, even if you didn't retrohale, it didn't canoe, it maintained construction the entire time, it did not fall apart, the wrapper did not come undone. And all the way into the final third, it was enjoyable. I believe that this review, the reason it's going over longer than my usual, is because of how thoroughly I enjoyed doing it after three weeks. Or two weeks, anyway. I think I smoked one on Thanksgiving called The Punch. And it was enjoyable enough. But the real fun, the real fun was this bourbon. And indeed... Held up, though not quite to the standard of it, some of its brothers. I suggest you grab one, if you can. It should be available at any retail cigar store. That is the Camacho Barrel Aged Bourbon. And, as we finish up the cigar review, I just advise that, uh, while some of you may not enjoy this and find it boring and unreasonable, this is my podcast. It is my way of venting, my way of expressing myself. And you're always free to skip through. I hope to one day have guests on this podcast to share it with. And I hope to smoke with them, whatever means I can. In any case, I wish you the best of luck as we continue on through this podcast. Hopefully you've made it to the end of this first segment. And off we go into our own journey, our own exchange as old friends. Alright, we're back after a brief interlude of approximately three seconds, because that's how long the recording is. I hope you enjoyed the first segment because here I am to rant to you. I recently had the pleasure of listening to a debate between a socialist and a capitalist. And The subject of the debate was simple. Is socialism a preferable alternative to capitalism? I often listen to debates in my free time. I enjoy them. I enjoy the exchange of ideas and the argumentation employed. I myself am a a confrontational person, believe it or not. I enjoy arguing immensely. And I like... Throwing around hefty ideas and great rhetoric, trying to inspire or get a crowd to agree with me. I would say I enjoy it almost as much. Well, as anything else. Playing a video game, reading, writing, speaking on this podcast. Offering my opinions in controversy to someone else's. In stark contrast, if you will. There's something about it that entertains me immensely makes me passionate, proud, gives me new life. I enjoy it immensely, and I enjoy watching others partake in it. For it's a tradition I find that is dying. In this age of media where debates and argument is so common, no one really seems to know how to do it correctly. In this case, I found it much the same to be true. The socialist started, and his argument essentially boiled down to, I'm not trying to sell you the socialism of the past. The communism, the Marxism, the Stalinism and Maoism of the past. I'm merely trying to suggest that there might be an alternative to capitalism. That we can do better. We being, I assume, the proletariat. The working man. The people. Not the 1%. While he didn't offer any solid replacement for capitalism, he did point out a few major issues with it. Namely... That capitalism is undemocratic. It unequal and promotes wealth inequality. And, generally speaking, entirely unstable. As there are regular recessions and depressions every 47 or so years. I'll be honest, economically... When I was younger, I was very libertarian, very conservative. I still am very conservative, traditional. One might even call me right-wing. But the arguments he made in favor of these three core premises, I found, were, well, interesting, to say the least. He compares capitalism to a monarchy in which there is still a king rolling over his kingdom, making all the decisions, and the subjects, the workers, are entirely based on his whims, what he wants. They make it or break it by his desire, with no say in their day-to-day lives, which, for most working adults, he claims, is where we spend most of our time. I found this interesting and true. It's true that when I get up and go to work, I know that I have to do what my manager says, and he, in turn, has to do what his executive says, and he, in turn, has to do whatever the family or owner says. I know this. But it would seem fundamentally unfair, me, an employee, going into someone else's business that they started and demanding that I be allowed to have a say in how they run it. After all, I don't have to work there. Or at least, I do have to work there if I want to pay my bills, but I don't have to work there specifically if I don't want to. The second point of monarchy was interesting, though, because I found it fitting. That that monarchy is essentially saying, well, at least in the old imperial Byzantine sense, the old emperors, quite literally owned everything within the empire. And everyone else just sort of rented it from him. All the subjects. Well, replace the word subject or serf, or he even goes so far as to say slave with employee and he says you have about an equivalent system he says the fundamental problem with this system is that while we democratized the government and the politics we did not democratize economics and so as a result you have a sort of corrupt system in which politics can be bought out by economics interesting take There is a connection there between political corruption and economic corruption. And his libertarian opponent responded simply by saying, Yes, of course there's corruption in this crony capitalist society. We call that crony capitalism. But the way to reduce that is by minimizing the government's role and interest and maximizing liberty for competitors. So things like the Federal Reserve should be gutted. But otherwise, the principles of private property and ownership and protection of individual liberties as far as these things relate, well, they should be maintained. I found this interesting. I found a lot of things interesting as far as this goes. But it seemed that the socialist and the capitalist were both agreeing. This didn't seem like a debate. It seemed as though the socialist would say something, "X is corrupt, and Y should be a better solution." And then the capitalist would re- respond by saying, "Oh, I agree, it is corrupt. But can you give me that solution?" And then the socialists would respond with, "Well, not really that solution, but you know, we should just consider a different solution together." And the capitalists would say, "I agree." We should consider that solution, so long as it's not done forcefully. And it seemed like the socialists could never really answer to the capitalists' response because the capitalists just co-opted whatever the socialists said. For instance, one of the points of the debate was a commune, right? This, this idea that workers' communes and collectives and, and co-ops exist and that in a capitalist society, those things can still exist. ...that you can voluntarily go and start your own co-op. Though it would be more difficult than starting your own business... ...as you have less control and have to consider other people. But you could theoretically do that. And indeed, in some places such as Spain, there are rather large co-ops. But one of the things I found interesting was that... ...well, of course, back to that word interesting... ...I'd say antagonizing. ...was that rather than arguing on the principles of individual ownership versus collective ownership, which to me is the basis of socialism and capitalism respectively, the capitalist would simply agree, oh yeah, collective ownership is fine. And the socialist would, st- would say, well, yes, we agree on that, or vice versa. All the capitalists would err on is that it could not be the state that pushes this collective ownership. There should be voluntary co-ops. And the socialist, unlike his capitalist ally, would not agree to this. He wouldn't outright condemn it, but he simply implied there was a systemic disregard for these co-ops. They rarely exist, at least in America. And that they're under pushed and underfunded. Well, he wouldn't come up with a solution for this because the obvious solution is well government funding, or perhaps they are not as effective as their capitalist rivals. Neither of these are effective points to push the co-op. What annoyed me about this was it felt like both were for the sake of trying to look good, simply, in a sense, co-opting each other's ideas. The capitalist would assert that he agreed with the socialist, that he thought, yes, workers should be able to own their own things, and then the socialist wouldn't be able to respond. The capitalist quoted, different passages out of a book the socialist had read. And he said things such as state ownership and and proposed a large council by which different bureaucrats would go about electedly, you know, allegedly handing out quotas and determining workforce shortages and basically centralizing command of the economy through full democratization of the economy. And the capitalist simply said, this is not feasible. You can't do this. They're jokes. I grew up in a socialist country. It doesn't work. It's inefficient. And the socialists would just say, well, I'm not saying it has to be that way. I wrote that book a long time ago. I don't stand by what it says now. We were left at square one again. This wasn't a debate. This is it felt, like two people who just kept trying to agree to each other and, and posture as though they were both on the same side. That's not what I came for. I came for argumentation. I came to hear different ideas, not the same ideas. I came to hear controversy, and while I was upset with capitalists for simply co-opting everything the socialists said and saying as long as it's done freely, that seemed like a much more reasonable position, and altogether more brilliant, than not asserting an opposite view. The socialist was afraid, for whatever reason, to offer a different view, even though that's what he was there to push. He was a Marxist, an Austrian economist, he said he aligned with, the Austrian School of Economics. He seemed to his major gripe wasn't whether socialism was better, that seemed to have already been decided. The capitalist didn't say that these co-ops were inferior, he merely stated, well, we should try them out. I thought the whole point of the debate was saying whether socialism was better than capitalism, not whether they could coexist. I was left feeling unsatisfied, as I didn't feel like I got an argument at all. Or any controversy. Perhaps that's just my confrontational nature. But I was expecting different ideas to be presented, contradicted, and paralleled. Instead, all I got was a set of ideas stacked against each other with slightly different means of putting them into effect. And the difference was provided by the same party, the capitalist, quoting the book. The socialist wouldn't even stand by what he had written. To me, it was altogether, well, disgusting. The socialists seemed to be there to push Marxism in schools, claiming there was not enough Marxist learning and teaching of economics in class. That most people were, at best, right-wing, and some of them, center-left, in economics, professors. But there was no Marxist school of thought in the United States. And I thought... Well, of course there's not a Marxist school in the United States. We fought many years, more than 70, against such ideas. If there is, and there was briefly, I believe at the University of Massachusetts, it would immediately implode. It's utterly foolish for a nation which has combated an idea for almost a century, for the better part of a century start promoting it in its own colleges. Though this hasn't actually stopped socialism. As I was taught this in elementary school with the sharing of resources where I and my parents were given an expansive list of things to bring to school. And then it was put in a communal bucket from which all the kids drew. And there were always shortages. I remember that as a kid. I remember that. That was my experience with socialism. The few kids who were well enough off to go and provide resources came into class, had it confiscated, and then there were always shortages by the end of the year. This happened three years, from the years of third grade to fifth grade. It did not take long for the message to sink in. My parents, who were not as politically minded as me, simply said it wasn't fair. They didn't call it socialism or communism. They weren't that radicalized or anything of that nature. They simply said it was unfair to make some kids... The kids who could have afforded it, whose parents paid for everything, go without while other kids brought nothing. These collective shortages first made me irritated and distrust socialism. Because when I heard it the term officially in middle school, it sounded exactly what I had been through in elementary school, and I had an instant gut distaste for it. As I felt it was unfair and inefficient. It doesn't work. It's a gut. It's an anecdote. But it's something more real than the debate I got tonight. Though, I will say this. As I've gotten older, my take on economics has gotten more left-leaning. No, I'm not a communist. No, I'm not a socialist. I'm neither of those things. I'm a nationalist. I believe in the collective of America, not the collective working class. I don't care whether you're working class or rich. If you're an American, your life matters to me. I'm a traditional nationalist. A civic nationalist, if you will. I don't care what your race or religion or creed is, so long as you love this country and want what is best for it. So long as you have an identity as an American. It's unfortunate, but it's unfortunate that I have to even be ashamed of saying this. It's unfortunate that it is unfortunate to be nationalist in a country, in a nation. If you have a nation, it makes sense to be nationalist. It makes more sense than being economically one way or the other. For who cares if it's socialist or capitalist, if the nation maintains its identity, if people get their bread? If men can raise their sons and women their daughters, if there's still honor, integrity, and justice, who cares whether it's a collective commune or a privately owned business, so long as they live with integrity? I have no problem with either. Even though I have far more skepticism about one than the other, I will equally entertain both if there is a logical, rational, Case to be made for either, but seemed all these people were doing were moral pondering, as though they both agreed. Well, these communes are superior, or could work better, or are fair, or they should be promoted. But one said the state shouldn't fund them, and the other one, well, he didn't say the state should, but it was just implied that he wouldn't say no. It was so interesting. It wasn't even a debate. It was just like a series of statements that didn't even necessarily contradict each other. I know I feel like I'm repeating myself, it's just, it was frustrating. My view of capitalism is generally this. Capitalism needs to be reined in with altruism, integrity, and honor. The richest among us should take into account their wealth and their blessing, and should be more than willing to share it with others. Though not forced to, if they do not want to. They should not be forced by their fellow man, but rather forced by their conscience, by their sense of honor, by their pride in their fellow man. In my world, every man is his brother's keeper, so long as his brother consents. And so does the keeper. Do I believe that we should forcibly take a man's profits from him? No. Do I believe that That man has a moral responsibility to help others? Yes. Do I believe I have the moral right to force him to be moral? No. There's a delicate balance between liberty and integrity. The consequences for man should not be legal. That's the problem. Legality and spirituality. There should be a spiritual law. A law of conscience. Written on the hearts of every man. Rich and poor. That... Should I succeed, I should use it to help others. I should love my neighbor, care for the widows and the orphans, protect and honor my people and those around me, respecting their wishes to the best of my ability and living with integrity in day-to-day life. I will not cheat them. I will not steal from them. I will not take advantage of the weak. I will protect them and help them and love them. I will shepherd them as I have been shepherded. I will feed them as I have been fed. I will clothe them as I can. As I was clothed. This is such a fundamentally simple thing. That man give and take care of one another. And yet it's so difficult. Of course, both sides make it difficult. With your stereotypical capitalist insisting that his private property allows him to do evil. To double-cross. To lie. To steal. Or perhaps maybe not steal. I mean, of course he should be forced by the government to maintain all contracts. But even if there's a contract which is clearly unfair, well, as long as both parties consent, then it's fair. They don't even take into account the idea that there might be corruption. That perhaps, just perhaps, the rich might have access to a better lawyer. That perhaps, just perhaps, the corporation has more power than the individual man. That's one of the frustrating things about being on the right. About being a conservative. Is you assume capitalism with altruism. You assume free markets, but also enslaved consciousness. Or consciences, I should say. Every man should be bound Not by a legal word spoken by the government, but by the law of his conscience, of God, written upon his heart, that tells him he needs to take care of those weaker than him. That lets him know that every man is made in God's image, that he has a responsibility and a duty to help others and bless them as God has blessed him. It's a simple concept, and I've reiterated it twice, three, four times now, but it seems so basic. And yet it's absent. Another thing that really grinds my gears about socialism. Is that they never make an argument from the point of view of the owner or ever try to empathize with him. While a capitalist may occasionally, and I do mean this very occasionally, make appeals to the worker, offering them status offering them the chance to move up into the status of an owner. The socialist will never, ever make room for an owner to voluntarily become a worker or put himself in the feet of the workie. He would rather have the worker murder the owner. He would rather the proletariat fight and destroy the bourgeoisie than have the bourgeoisie willingly step down. And this is because he assumes that the bourgeoisie will do everything he can to keep his position. I use these Marxist terms because they're convenient for me. But the worker and the owner, they do not have to be enemies and they can be allies. Because the thing that socialists and capitalists, libertarians and communists do not take into account is that life is about more than economics. It is more than a series of transactions. It is more than money or resources. It is more than profit, and loss. Life has other dimensions to it. Liberty without virtue is not virtuous. Wealth without virtue is not good. Poverty without virtue is not good. There are different things besides the amount of money in your wallet, the size of your checking account, the size of your house, how nice your car is, what shoes you're wearing, what suits you're tailored. There are more things in life. These things are nice things to have, but they are not the end result of life. They are not the end. They are only a means to an end. And that ultimate end should be the betterment, the good, whatever is good. Both are materialistic and do not take into account God. They don't even take into account general ideas of morality. They don't take into account culture, ethnicity, tradition, life experiences, geography, resources available. The capitalist assumes capitalism can function anywhere at any time and in any circumstances. The communist assumes the same about his ideology. Neither consider the differences between people. Even two people, two men, living in the same neighborhood, of the same race, of the same religion, with the same size family and figures and income, logistically equal, can still hate each other. They can still dislike each other. They can still be appalled by each other's habits and life. They can still dislike one another's individual traits and personalities. They could simply dislike the look of one another. Or the sound of a voice. Or their obnoxious podcast that they release once every week or two weeks or so. They could hate the smell of a cigar. Or dislike the way in which the wife looks at them. There's so many things to being human and economics does not summarize it. Economics is a reflection of a human. Humans are not reflections of economics. You do not have the market without people. But you can have people without a market. It's frustrating. I don't know if I'm making sense. But I hope someone out there understands. That when these people debate and argue. Have point counterpoint. And don't look at things through one lens. Economics is important, but it's not the only thing that defines your value. Tradition. Integrity. Personal accountability. Give me a group of men. Any group of men. Who love one another, take care of one another, respect one another, keep each other safe. And provide for one another's needs. And I say that's a successful system. I don't care what color they are. I don't care how much each of them is taking home. I don't care what clothes they wear or how much they buy. I don't care what language they speak. I care very little about those things. I care more about the heart of a man who has a heart for his fellow man. Of course, I love my country and my people. But I love my country and my people. While I have my preferences and how things should be run, and they're very strong preferences, ultimately to that end it is for my fellow man, for my fellow citizens, not for my bank account. That's the first thing wrong with this debate, is it looks at these systems without taking into account humanity as it is, and that there are other things more important, far more important than who can produce the newest iPhone, who has the shiniest car who has the best internet connection. There are fundamental values and oughts that exist outside of a market. And whether you're a Marxist demanding universal products or a capitalist demanding universal freedom and liberty for your products and your markets, it's irrelevant. If neither of them are being done For the betterment of your fellow man and to honor and respect the virtues and integrities of your fellow man, then they are empty, worthless things that should not be considered. And that's just my take. So recently I was told that I uh, I should keep the podcast shorter, that it's easier, that it keeps retention, that people, generally speaking, enjoy that more. And I think I will. So I believe this is the end of the podcast, and I'd just like to go ahead and thank you all for staying with me until the end. The one or two of you that actually make it all the way through, you're real fans, and I appreciate it. If any of you ever wants to be on the podcast, you're free to join me. Go ahead and look me up on Instagram at Virginia Company Podcast, and message me. I'd be happy to entertain you. I'd be happy to have you. I've got another gentleman uh, who's actually supposed to join me. He's a friend of mine named Austin, and he does, I guess, car renovations. He's also a firefighter, and you know, apparently works for a paper printing company. Ton of cool stuff, but he's trying to do his own startup and. Figured it might be interesting to have him on, talk about things, and uh, have a longer form, 30 to hour minutes, hour long podcast with him. We'll still do Cigar of the Week course, but, you know, aside from that, I'd like to give him the floor. I don't know when exactly he'd be on. I hope it doesn't work out like the other one, but I would like to have him on. And if any of you are out there and have a small business or or a local business and you're in this area, uh, Virginia, in the Fredericksburg area, I'd be happy to hear you out and talk to you, you know. I'm just a dude ranting in his room, but I'm certain, I'm certain we could all have something to uh, talk about, to enjoy, to have fun with, you know? I hope one day that this podcast does get popular and grows, and I'd like you to be there with me. In any case, I hope you guys have a great week. I know I'm having a hard one, but in any case, (laughs) it's uh, it's going to keep on getting harder, huh, as you get busy. I've been going to the gym a lot more, and actually went tonight before I smoked, and um, we did back and going up in weight and getting stronger. My endurance is increasing. I've just got to maintain form. If I can just maintain control and form, I'll be fine. I've also got to control my eating. A lot of people say I look like I've lost weight, but I don't think so. <laughs> I'm still the same weight I was. But going to the gym three times a week has got to be helping somehow. I'm also doing some WW so that uh, you know I can maintain my weight. Maybe not gain, but at least maintain. Maybe not lose a lot, but at least maintain. I'm eating a lot of protein, a lot more vegetable I eat, a salad every day. And I'm hoping this leads to slight improvement over time. If not, just a little bit healthier. At least it makes me feel better about myself. And honestly, having a fine mind you know, that's happy and satisfied with itself is the best reward. In any case, I hope you guys have a great day. Have a great week. Have a great year and a great life. Please come and join me again on the podcast. And like I said, thank you so much for listening. And I'm out.